0: You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today's conversation was recorded at a SOCAP 365 event in Baltimore recently. It is focused on alternative ownership structures, particularly cooperatives, and their potential for creating community wealth. For anyone listening who, like myself, is coming into the conversation without much knowledge of the subject, the defining characteristic of a co-op is that it's jointly owned and democratically controlled by its members. There are a number of different structures for cooperatives, such as consumer co-ops, where the customers actually own the business, as is the case with REI, the largest retail co-op in the country. There are also producer co-ops, which are popular in the agricultural industry, where they can provide farmers with market power or economies of scale without having to give up control of their farms. The Dairy Farmers of America is an example of a producer co-op and serves as a, a marketing arm for the fragmented dairy farming industry. The moderator of today's conversation, Kate Khatib, co-founded a worker co-op in Baltimore called Red Emma's, a restaurant, bookstore, and community event space where all of the store's employees are worker owners. And those are only a few of the various co-op structures. The unique ownership structure of a cooperative represents an opportunity for community development through inclusive growth and wealth creation. But it also creates hurdles when trying to acquire financing from traditional financial institutions, as the panelists will discuss in depth during the conversation. So let's jump in as Kate introduces the topic and today's panelists.
2: The structure of employee ownership, the structure of worker ownership is a a major factor. It's a major way um, that we're trying to actually change the economic system. And capital is a huge piece of that. And it's often one of the most problematic pieces for our workers in our communities. So we're excited to get to talk with you all today about different strategies and, and... some of the challenges and the potential solutions that we might be able to implement. Um, I'm going to ask our our panelists to introduce themselves. um, And it would be awesome, you all, if you can talk a little bit just about who you are, what your organization is, and maybe just if you have a a favorite example or an example that you're really excited about right now of a a co-op, a community-controlled enterprise um, that you just want to throw out and get in people's minds. Joseph, do you want to start?
3: Joseph Kiritson and I'm with the staffing cooperative so one of my favorite kind of examples of a community controlled not necessarily cooperative um, is actually out of Chicago it's a thing called EG wood um, it's super exciting because they actually are buying properties some of them are in receivership from the city and allowing leaseholder tenants uh, to occupy and actually you know run their businesses out of the space but those leaseholder tenants end up owning E.G. Wood through a patron dividend um, and actually have controlling stake in the, in the development itself. Um, why that's exciting is because, you know, rent overhead, as pretty much everybody can understand, is one of the most onerous things in, you know, in, in business. Um, they're allowing them to, A, obviously kind of like mutualize that, and then, B, providing back-end services uh, so that the businesses can thrive and survive. So I don't know, I just think that that's really interesting. And the control from the worker's standpoint, or the control from the entrepreneur's standpoint, is really amazing.
4: My name is Greg Brodsky. I'm the director of Start.coop. We are an accelerator for co-ops looking to scale. Um, We just finished our inaugural class, which Joseph is a part of, and I'll talk about more. And we are Start.coop on the web, easy URL, and uh, at Start underscore co-op on Twitter. my favorite example of co-ops is the Philadelphia Contribution Ship. So I love it because, you know, people, you said the word co-op, people think it's this hippie, socialist, wacky thing, right? So uh, it was the first co-op started in the United States by Benjamin Franklin in 1752. It started out of a need, an economic need, as almost every co-op does, where people in Philadelphia were, when a fire happened, it was devastating people's lives. And so they said, hey, you know, what if we all put in a little bit of money, And we'll get paid out when a thing happens. We'll cooperatively share financial risk. um, And that company is still around today.
5: Hi, my name is Olivia Rebinal from Capital Impact Partners. We're a national nonprofit organization. We are a community development financial institution. Um, We have roots in the cooperative industry. We were created by the National Cooperative Bank. One model that I'm really enjoying right now, I live in the Bay Area, in Oakland, California, where the housing costs are enormous. And there is an organization called East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative that is going about securing land through a partnership with land trusts and building on it and creating assets, real estate on top of it that is owned cooperatively. They're doing it both residentially and commercially. And I think that sometimes we forget about the need to retain affordable commercial space so that small businesses can thrive. And so I'm particularly interested in helping them secure commercial cooperative real estate.
2: Cool, thank you. And thanks again to all of you for for being here and joining us today. Co-ops come in all shapes and forms and sizes. Um, Some of them are extremely large and have thousands and thousands of members. Some of them are very small, might have three people working together to cooperatively move forward an enterprise. Um, It's one of the things that's really kind of amazing and beautiful about cooperatives is that the structure is very malleable and it allows us to build businesses, run businesses and sustain businesses in the ways that make the most sense for whoever those members are. The members might be the people who shop there, like a food co-op. The members might be the people who work there, like a worker cooperative. The members might be the people who live there, housing cooperatives. We actually have a number um, of very large housing cooperatives in Baltimore that are that are kind of off, um, off the radar. A lot of people don't know that they exist, but there's a significant amount of cooperative housing um, in the city of Baltimore, and it's worth looking into that more and, and kind of understanding the way cooperatives are woven together into the fabric of the city. Um, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my story and how I ended up doing this work of of co-op financing. Um, As Michelle mentioned, I'm the director of a National Network of Cooperative Loan Funds. Um, What we do is use a model of non-extractive financing to connect workers. We work primarily with worker cooperatives, um, so businesses that are owned by the people who work there. We try and figure out how to connect worker cooperatives with patient capital, so capital that can come in can wait to be repaid until the business hits a certain point of profitability. That network is called Seed Commons. But I started this work um, as a worker owner. So I'm one of the founders of Red Emma's, which is um, a large worker co-op we've been around for 15 years. So in 2003, me and seven other people started this little bookstore and and coffee shop. Um, It was in Mount Vernon at that point. It was very small. Um, It was not something that we were necessarily expecting to be making a living off of. It was, for us, about creating public space. It was about bringing people together. It was providing an opportunity um, for people to start experimenting with democracy in the workplace. So it was co-owned, co-managed from the very beginning. Red Emma's existed for 10 years. kind of had amazing success. Baltimore was ready for Red Emma's, and Red Emma's was ready for Baltimore. It ended up being um, an extremely productive time for us. We incubated a couple other cooperatives in that time. And then in 2013, we decided it was time for us to expand. We wanted to really take our our original project, which was this bookstore and this restaurant, and turn it into something that was going to be a sustainable enterprise for us as workers. So we wanted to be able to work there full time. We wanted to be able to support ourselves. So we went to the bank. And we said, hey, can we have a loan? We need like you know, $250,000, not a huge amount of money for a major expansion. We've been around for 10 years. We have positive cash flow. Um, we weren't making a ton of cash, but it was positive. We weren't losing money. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, we'd survived the economic crash in 2008. And the banks were like, are you insane? We're not going to give you $250,000. Nobody owns this business. There are, like, there are 12 of you. And we were like, well, yeah, because I, do you want all 12 of us to sign the paperwork? That's fine. We're happy to do that. And the bank said, no, what we want is for you to choose the three people who have the best credit and the most assets, and we're going to use that to secure your loan. What's the problem with that? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Why might that be a problem? Power imbalance, absolutely. It introduces a hierarchy into your project. Um, and for us, that was, it was non-negotiable. It was something that we weren't interested in doing. We weren't interested in replicating those same structures of who has access to capital. We didn't believe that just because you had personal credit, just because you had assets, you were the only people who could get access to the money that you needed to build your business. So we started looking around for other options, um, and we started to to work with cooperative lenders. So people that were doing a very radical kind of financing, looking at at mitigating risk, looking at evaluating um, evaluating a business in different ways, and you know. Most of the co-op lenders at that point in the country were still a little nervous about worker cooperatives. They were mostly working with housing co-ops. They were mostly working with food co-ops where you have a significant amount of assets, like a building or like stock, um, that can help to secure that loan. We had very little assets. Mostly our asset was us, the human labor. And then we finally found an organization called The Working World, which was a democratic lender based in New York. Um, They'd done a lot of their work in Argentina. And... Fascinating story. Ask me about it afterwards. I won't go into it now. Um, But they took a chance on us. They were the first people to really see this tiny little project that had been around for 10 years as a serious business and say, yes, actually we are going to help figure out how to invest in you. We are going to figure out how we're going to bring money into this project. And their bet on us was hugely transformative for us. It was a moment that allowed us to change the way that we thought about ourselves. We stopped thinking about ourselves as a scrappy little activist project, started thinking about ourselves as a serious entrepreneurial business. That ended up being a a pretty good bet. Emma's hit in its new location, which used to be just right up the street, hit its, not only hit, but exceeded its projections in the first year, broke a million dollars in sales in the second year. That was huge. It was this moment where people were like, oh, shit. Actually, these small cooperative projects can scale can actually start to generate significant income. So we went back to the working world two years later and said, you know, we got to have some kind of cooperative loan fund in Baltimore. We have a little bit of profit. Few other businesses have a little bit of profit. Can we start a revolving loan fund? And it turned out that they were already starting to talk to cooperatives and communities in different places around the country about needing to provide these kinds of resilient financing structures. So Seed Commons, which is our network of loan funds, grew out of those experiences of individual co-op members, individual community members, running up against these challenges of traditional finance, which didn't really know how to evaluate us, didn't really know how to um, see us as viable businesses, because we look so different, and and the assets that we have are so different. Um, So with that, I'm going to pass it on to Joseph to talk a little bit about his story and about core staffing.
3: When we got started, it was simply just, I have a couple of people in my network that we kind of like are suffering together. I'm um, most primarily people coming out of prison and jail that wanted to connect with their with employers that face barriers, for, you know, I don't even need to go into that, what the barriers of people coming out of prison and jail are. Um, it's the same in pretty much every city. Um, but that decided that, okay, well, if we're gonna do this, we might as well do it together, the search, right? And then the second part of the connection, um, we might as well have an intermediary between us and the people that are holding the contracts, right? So this idea of connection kind of like got started. Fast forward a year, I know that's like skipping over a whole lot of stuff, uh, but fast forward a year, those same people were like, you know, it's working. We actually are making our ends meet. We're moving out of a place of homelessness into you know, sleeping in cars to actually like an apartment. Um, to buying a car. Like, holy crap, how can I buy a car now? I mean, like, these are, te- you know, it's teeny tiny little enterprise, but still it's affecting change. Um, and once people get out of their lizard brains, they start thinking about other stuff, right? They're like, wow, this works for me. This could work for a bunch of other people. Um, Joseph, how, do you, how the hell are you still doing this? You know, a year later, I'm like, well, I have a, a, a bit of a skill set, software engineers by trade, um, you know, had access to that education um, was able to do that and you know like that's how I make my ends meet I do another type of contract labor I do freelancing and they're like huh so can we do that I was like yeah it's but I mean like let's it's it's in a while right you got to like actually learn the whole skill set a whole trade. like all right all right so how about we just invite other people like you into our co-op like okay cool rebrand uh you know like the whole returning citizen thing, we probably all can't be under the one same bucket, so like, just figure it out, right? Uh, we Put together an advisory board, we decided to do um, kind of like a bunch, of series of meetings to figure that out. Uh, simultaneously, my best friend and I uh, started a tech meetup in Baltimore, be more black techies meetup, not good at naming things, <laughs> you know, and it was because we were tired of playing black Waldo in the tech spaces here, where you go into these meetup groups and like, you look around and there's like, Two people that look like you and we're like this is a this is a 60 percent or so uh black city and there is not a 60 percent ratio here what's going on right um so what we decided to do was just make our own space again resilient right like so we just said all right let's just put up a shingle let's see who comes uh first week we had 10 and you know a year we had a thousand uh, on the meetup, right? Um, about 50 people per week show up and ended up, because this whole like democracy thing, I actually went to a bread jump start and just drank the Kool Aid real hard. Um, but you know, like <laughs> uh, instilled the kind of like democratic leadership in that organ in that group, it's not even an organization, in that group um, from the beginning, and that took over and kind of took root. Um, and throughout that year, people were like, this is, this makes sense. We can actually organize together, not having like a hierarchical kind of like top down managerial thing. Um, we can actually like raise each other up. Hmm, what else could we do and then I talked about core, of course, uh, and you know the the seed of that democratic leadership kind of like took root, and people felt like they could do it um, so staffing cooperative is a kind of joint venture between. CORE, which is focused on labor uh, for people coming out of prison and jail, and TRIBE, which is focused on tech labor, so creative and tech, um, coming together to own the enterprise that they built. So uh, what that looks like, how that actually plays out, um, for us, patronage, or for us, ownership, um, agency, looks like ours worked. So there's no widget, we're not making a thing, we're actually just working. Um, So if you're making $12 an hour at core, or $40 an hour at tribe, great, that's what you take out home in the market. But when you talk about ownership of the company, it's really just by hours worked. Okay, so does that make sense? So like overall, when we control the enterprise together, that means that we're making software engineers, designers, People of privilege sitting next to people coming out of prison and jail making decisions about their money. Think about that. Right. So lots of things to work through, uh, <laughs> lots of challenges, but that one kind of like seed, that little nugget of control, I think is the most innovative or most challenging thing that we're doing. Um, and then the, the last part is like, we hope that what, the way that we expand is by inviting more people in. So yes, I do want to have a nursing staffing co-op. Right? Yes, I do want to have a, you know, a, a legal staffing co-op. Great, right? Um, that just means that within the network, we're now providing more you know, so, uh, intellectual capital to all the workers, so yeah.
2: So Greg, do you want to talk a little bit about your journey in Start.co-op?
4: Sure. Hi, everyone. So someone said to me recently that you know, people either come to co-op work from the business side and they have to learn the social, or from the social side and they have to learn the business. Um, I came to it from the, from the business side, so a very different story. Uh, when I was growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, my dad owned a local carpet store. Um, and when I was a kid, I, I have memories of these huge rolls of carpet in the middle of the store, and we would go after work, and I'd run up and down the rolls of carpet, right? And as a kid, you don't understand the business, but that's what I remember about the store. Um, when I was about seven years old uh, in 1984, my father got together with eight other guys who ran carpet stores around the country and they started talking about um, common challenges they had in their business. They were all buying from the same suppliers, they all had the same training challenges, marketing challenges, they all had the same sorts of operational expenses. They said, Look, you know, maybe there's an opportunity if we work together, if we work cooperatively, even though they didn't understand what the word co-op meant at that point, um, to gain an economy of scale, to make our lives better, to have an impact if we work together. Um, and that was the start. And so my, at the time my dad was running the floor covering store, part-time they started organizing this group, similar to what Joseph is doing now. You, know, you gotta start somewhere, you build up, like you guys did. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna fast forward 35 years later to today. <laughs> um, that group uh, has uh, over 2,000 stores, um, that group, collectively, does about $10 billion in sales. That's with a B. Um, and they buy and sell more floor covering in the US outside of anyone except for Home Depot and Lowe's. Um, so in that industry of a what we call a purchasing co-op, groups of independent stores who work together, um, they're a, a big success story. So on the occasions where I've traveled with my father to a, a, a flooring industry event, uh, which I don't recommend, um, <laughs> It's uh, the people come up to my dad and, and you know sort of thank him for what he did is, is like mind blowing to me you know there are people come up and say you know geez you know because of the, the co-op, I was able to you know save for my kids education we were able to retire uh, in a way we didn't think we could we were able to keep our family business around during the recession um, so there's these amazing personal stories uh, in what it's meant in that industry and so my father's really proud and I'm really proud of my father for the work he's done um, I got the opportunity in 2003, around the same time it turns out you guys were starting Red Emma's, um, to use the same model to uh, start a group for uh, retail bicycle stores, which was my personal passion. Um, And so uh, we started a a co-op for for bike shops uh, to help them uh, save money on things they buy. Uh, I did that for 10 years. Um, And then about three years ago, I got the opportunity again to help a group of uh, business owners in this time uh, craft brewery owners uh, around the country to form a purchasing co-op on things they buy so cans bottles cardboard um and so so several different an industries and and so what co-ops do is they the level the playing field right so whether you're talking employee owned whether you're talking business owners they level the playing field they bring economies of scale to people who maybe wouldn't have those economies of scale otherwise and so for, and, and in this time of like huge wealth inequality that we all know, um, the need for co-ops is, is bigger than it ever has been. And so as a result, you know, we're seeing this renewed interest. Um, we're seeing applications every week. We're seeing people come to events like this. But there's also a lot of mystery around what that word means. And so one of my personal goals is, you know, how do we actually take the mystery out of the word co-op? How do we you know, de-vague de it, if that's a word, Uh, how do we make it real how do we give people the recipe the formula and so I was very very fortunate to create these two business models only because I got to watch my my father do it in real time and so you know my personal mission became you know I have this interesting skill set now of of how to build these models there are people who want to build these models how do how do we help other people do that so if you ever started looking at these considerations how do we build uh, co-ops at scale and that's my particular interest is how do you scale co-ops and there are huge scaled co-ops all around us, whether you're talking REI or Ocean Spray or Ace Hardware or credit unions or Blue Diamond Almonds. I mean, they're multi-million and billion dollar co-ops that we don't think about. And so after looking at a few different models, um, we we settled on the idea of using an accelerator format. Uh, We realized that what people are really missing is, in our opinion, and we'll talk more about this, two things, uh, money, which we're still working on, gathering for people, and we'll talk about more, and then strategy, and that the, the accelerator format is a really efficient way to help people uh, you know, gear up faster. We use it as a vehicle to bring in mentorship, curriculum, financing, um, and platform providers for people. Um, and so we, we said, let's just, let's just do it. Let's, let's stop doing one-offs in the co-op community. Let's actually create some efficiencies of our own. So we opened up for applications last summer. Uh, we're a startup ourselves. Uh, We got 82 applications around the country, which was way more than we thought. Um, And uh, Joseph was obviously one of the all-stars of that group. Um, And so we're just finishing our first cohort at a graduation um, at a conference next week in San Francisco. So that's how I got to here.
2: Thank you. Olivia?
5: My story, my journey, I think it's interesting, but I don't know that I want to start there. <laughs> I am a small business lender by training, and sometimes I say I'm an activist by spirit. But where I want to start is really in the 1930s and 40s. We're here with this exhibit, un- Undesigned the Red Line, which is extremely powerful. There's this thing that happened. It was legit and institutionalized, and the government said, go and redline. So this means that black people and other people could not get access to homes. This means everything in this world now. We're talking about capital, we're talking about the racial wealth divide. And it started then and it is actually getting worse. And it is also interesting that it's meaningless if you are a high income, black or other person of color. Because your net worth remains low. And that's so troubling and it really speaks to how our credit and capital practices have been institutionalized. They're highlighted here. I was just reading this um, property deed and underwriting manual. These manuals uh, is how we as lenders uh, underwrite debt. This is how we make decisions and things like this they still appear in our underwriting guidelines. I work for a uh, a commercial community development financial institution. They're pretty cool. They came out, um, they started in the 60s um, in the civil rights movement as a response to people that weren't lending in Harlem and other risky places, just like this whole redlining thing. They're coming out of redlining. And um, we started intentionally lending in those communities. We became a real deal in the 90s through the Clinton administration, and we we are certified by Treasury. Our organization in our history has deployed $3 billion into low-income communities. That pretty much is communities of color. That's federal terminology. Um, And 300 million of that is going to support cooperatives. That's a sliver. It's a lot of money, but it's only 10% of what we really do. And it's tough. It just speaks to how challenging it is to get capital, not only into the communities we serve, but to the cooperative model. We want to support, we do support cooperatives um, as part of our mission because it promotes inclusion and equity and as uh, Greg was saying, levels the playing field using that terminology. It's really not level right now. And the cooperative model provides opportunity for wealth creation in particularly Excluded communities, and so we find that very powerful, but it's a challenge to get our capital into those communities When our underwriting guidelines still look like this So we do have to be very creative, but we also have to think about how we're going to start to rewrite our underwriting guidelines Um, Some ways that we're doing that is partnering with many uh, different kinds of organizations, many of which mentioned here, the working world, um, to help us understand what the quote-unquote risks are. And I say quote-unquote risks because it's called risk. You know, in the underwriting manual it says, if you deem it to be risky, then don't do it. And that's really all it says. And so if you are accustomed to non-cooperative models and you are faced with a a co-op like you went to the bank, And then they say, don't know it, risky. Don't understand, risk. And it is not very clear in our underwriting guidelines what risk really means. And so to de-risk, I think we have to demystify. And so people maybe forget that the roots of cooperatives were really born in communities of color internationally and many other countries outside of America. Cooperatives thrived in villages I mean, in my town, in the Bay Area, like my grandmother, the cooperative that she belonged to, they would all put their money in and buy lottery tickets. So, I mean, that's (laughs) a form, right? We are cooperative, we're all putting in. And when we succeed, we we are all going to benefit. And that's the beauty of that model. But it has existed for a long time. And somehow we've forgotten what this is all about and what the benefits are and how it all works. So I think there is a lot to do for us especially in, among lenders, is a lot of education just about what risk really is and that this actually, this model is not risky. I think statistics show that they're pro- they can be very profitable. You are cash positive. What's risky about a cash positive business? I don't get it. What is they considered risky is that underwriting guidelines say we need to have at least two personal guarantees. And then that's the problem. So it's not really risky, we really just need to understand why do we ask for all the guarantees. And then we think guarantees are supposed to provide collateral whatever, de-risk it. Well, if you have a pool of dollars that you've cooperatively created, can you just use that instead of my personal guarantee? So I think we just have to think more creatively about what exactly the barriers are to getting our capital into your cooperatives so that we can solve for the problem a little bit better.
2: What are some of the barriers that, that exist? I mean, we talked a little bit about risk. Um, let's think about personal credit. So personal credit is often a huge challenge for, for cooperative members. A lot of times people who are drawn to cooperatives, like Joseph said, it's a lot of times it's out of economic necessity. So a lot of people grew up being socialized to think they could never own their own business. In fact, they were told that. They were told you're always gonna work for someone else. You're never gonna have the opportunity to work for yourself may as well get used to it. Cooperatives provide an opportunity to get outside of that, right? Working together, aggregating what we have, our skills, the little bit of of personal wealth that we do have, um, especially the connections that we have in the communities that we come out of, it provides an opportunity um, to find a pathway into business ownership that a lot of people thought they were never going to have. That means you're oftentimes dealing with people who don't have good credit, don't have any credit, um, don't have assets that they can put up. And so that's where those personal guarantees become a problem, right? I mean, in my co-op, every single one of the worker owners is happy to sign a personal guarantee saying, yes, we will pay this loan back. But at the end of the day, if you come, at, you know, come after us, if we don't pay our loan back, what are you going to get? Like, We've all been working in the food service industry most of our lives. We don't have very much savings. Uh, if you know anything about the food service industry, right? Like waiters, cooks—like we don't make huge salaries. We make enough to sustain ourselves, and and we make enough, hopefully, to be able to support our kids and and things like that. Um, that's that's a challenge. Um, what are some of the other challenges that that you all have seen co-ops come up against, or what are some what are some of the challenges that um, lenders have thinking about trying to figure out how to support these kinds of businesses?
4: Well. You know, I mean, let, let me just give you my my take on it. I think we might have three very different answers, but you know, so I just to demystify what co-ops are. I view them as an ownership model, right? Now, Joseph will say that's reducing what a co-op is. Um, I would tell you that I think it's a very powerful ownership model that realigns the incentives. Okay, and so I think. So let me uh, let me pick on both sides a little bit. Let me pick on the entrepreneur side, and I'll pick on the funder side. Um, but let me just give you a little bit of context first. So. Traditionally, you know, co-ops only had one shareholder class, right? So let's imagine everyone in this room is going to start a new consumer food co-op. We are the membership class, right? We're 100% of the equity. In order to be a member, you've got to be a consumer who's going to shop at this food co-op. That was the model for decades and decades. And so all the equity was with the people in this room. So the only option was to borrow against the equity, okay, like you're saying. And so what what sprung up was a handful of – you could go to a traditional bank. Maybe they would get it. Maybe they won't still a huge problem. Um, but what sprung up was a handful of loan funds uh, support those models, okay? So you could borrow against the equity that your members put in, whether that was $25 or $100 per person, whatever it was, and the loan funds would say, okay, you got X amount in the bank to borrow against, we'll give you some multiple of that. And that's all there's been for decades, okay? So there's really four, maybe five funds that will do that, and I'll just name them so they're in the notes, okay? so. Uh, where I am, you have Cooperative Fund New England, doesn't help most of the people in this room. Um, you got Local Enterprise Assistance Fund, who works nationally, happens to also be based in Boston. Um, you have Shared Capital at Minneapolis, um, which, uh, or maybe St. Paul, but they work nationally. You have The Working World, if you're a worker co-op, and you guys are, you know, innovating and doing a lot of great things there. And potentially, you have Capital Impact Partners. You guys don't always love startups, so I'm going to call that out in a very gentle way. You guys do a lot of great work with co-ops, but.
5: But we capitalized all the funds that they, he just mentioned, so. <laughs> there you go. That's our contribution. <laughs> Hello.
4: <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but so anyway, so, so that's, that's the landscape just to level set. Now the problem is, loans are a really hard way to start a business, right? So if we look at like the tech boom in America, where our has grown over the last 30 years, the, the tech boom was not based on loans. It was based on equity. It's really hard to start a brand new business and say, we have these huge loans hanging over our head. It's hard enough to have, you know, be a profitable business. It's hard enough to have cash flow in the first few years. I mean, Uber just filed their IPO. They've never been profitable, right? <laughs> Amazon wasn't profitable until two years ago, okay? So these businesses literally couldn't pay, pay back loans for the amount of money they've, t- they've taken out. The biggest growth stories in the economy wouldn't accommodate these loans. And, and yet we are asking co-ops to say, the only access to capital you have is loan. And so it's hard enough to be a co-op, but we're not going to give you what, we, what we're now calling risk-aligned capital, right? We're not giving you capital to grow with. We're going to give you very conservative capital. We're going to have very strict lending standards. So there isn't really capital set up for like riskier high-growth ventures. And so th- these four funds I mentioned to you, that's what's there. None of them love startups, but you, you, can, you can get there, okay? Um, and so, so the, 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 what's evolved, and let me know if I go on too long or I, is what's evolved is now you have these multi-stakeholder co-ops. And multi-stakeholder co-ops to me are what's unlocking where the, co- where the co-op community can go. It's what we're trying to encourage in everyone in our program. Um, and what a multi-stakeholder co-op says is, look, we can actually have more than one class of stakeholders. It's not just consumers. So let's take our imaginary consumer food co-op. Maybe we want it to be 51% owned by consumers. Maybe we want it to be 20% owned by the workers who work there and let's say the balance is gonna be investors, okay? And those numbers can be whatever you want, um, but if we start to think about ownership as a design question, which is the phrase I'm trying to use, it's a design question. How much do the consumers need to have? How much do the workers need to have? How much outside investment money do we need? How do we align the, the board seats versus the capital we need to fund the business and get it going? And we really have a thoughtful discussion around that. That's where it needs to go. So as soon as you're talking these multi-stakeholder models, now you can say we have an outside investor class. They're not patron members, and if you don't know what that means, come up and talk to us after. Um, but the investor class, you can, have, you can bring an outside capital if you can find the right people on day one. Um, so I, I think, first of all, that's, that's something that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be thinking about from day one, so you're not totally dependent on these four loan funds. Um, and then the last thing I guess I wanna say is, I think if you're an entrepreneur looking at these models, is I, I think to, to your point, Kate, I think you really have to get uh, great at the business plan and the financial part as someone just been getting a lot of applications for our program over the last year, I think you know people kind of do these like vague business plans and, and they do uh, what I call, call co-ops is magical thinking um, that, that you don 't need to make money you don 't really have to have a marketing plan that co ops are all we need to be a differentiator in our category. Um, But you need to have a great business plan. You need to understand the financials. You know, when companies go out, um, people might think they go out because of governance or legal. They they go out because they run out of money, um, and they they run out of time and money. And so really nailing the financials and how your business is going to make money, how you're going to pay back investors you bring in, I think that's what matters, so that when you go to preferred shareholders, when you go to co-op loan funds, um, you you really have a, a plan together. So. A little bit of a long answer, but that's how I see the landscape.
2: So uh, I wonder, does everybody in the room understand how debt and equity function differently in a business? Because I think that might be, I think that might be actually helpful for grounding this. Because one of the things I'd love to ask um, for you all to to think about is how do How do investors, um so individuals with wealth, family foundations, how do how do those um, those kinds of investors support cooperatives? Because I think that's something that's on the mind of a lot of folks.
5: One of the critical things with the capital shuffling is to think about what the source and the use is. And so debt is a really good tool for things that are hard assets like real estate. Mortgages work out because if you lose your job, they'll just make your house. Or, you know, but for other things, it's more squishy. For cooperatives, as we've heard with the many examples, there's a lot of technical assistance, which takes time. You have to educate your own owners about what it means to democratically and cooperatively own an entity. There's a lot of education there, there's also legal structures. So, there's a lot of this stuff that actually is not a hard asset in the same way that a piece of equipment or some real estate is that needs to be funded and so that sort the source of the funding that goes toward that kind of thing needs to also be pretty soft so p- more patient capital needs to be identified so that we can support all that technical assistance that goes into developing and supporting a cooperative the source of those soft dollars could be many things. You could generate it from some owners, some um, investors that are providing equity, but I think the point is, is that it needs to be equity in nature and not debt. So matching those things up, I think in my mind, really helps me understand where the real problem is. And what I would say, bringing it back to the fact that many cooperatives are being developed in under-resourced, marginalized, excluded communities, is that there is a social good that will happen from this as we bring them into a more mainstream economy. And so following that play, there will be social impact investors, maybe foundations that are willing to offer some sort of subsidized debt or equity or grants to be able to support the development and sustenance of cooperatives.
2: It's often one of the challenges that I think we have as cooperatives when we're starting to think about, are we going to debt finance this? Are we going to try and bring equity in? There's a lot of fear, just talking about my co-op and and the experience of working with worker co-ops, there's a lot of fear about working with investors, right? Right. Because there are these narratives that you hear of, well, there are investors and they're going to come in and they're going to control your business. And you know, if you have gravitated towards a worker-owned business already, you are probably somebody who doesn't want to cede control of decision making to people who are not there on the shop floor every day. There are political and social reasons for that. Um, there are just structural reasons for that. Um, and so that, that has been a big challenge, I think, for a lot of cooperatives to even start wrapping their head around the idea of bringing investment in. One of the structures that that exists that a lot of us are gravitating towards now is this idea of of different share classes within the business. So one really pertinent example is um, Class B preferred shares. These are non-voting shares. They allow investors to put money directly into a business in a a one-to-one relationship, so you purchase a share. But it doesn't come with a vote. It doesn't come with decision-making power. It's a way of putting that money at the service of the business, you know, hopefully if the business is successful um, and is generating profit, earning an annual dividend. Um, but it's it's a structure that really allows cooperative businesses and other businesses, but mostly co-ops use it, um, to bring that money in in a way that doesn't cede that kind of voting control. Um, Equal Exchange, which is one of the largest worker cooperatives in the country, really successfully used this model a number of years ago to raise a significant amount of, of money that really helped catalyze their transformative growth from being a very small project um, to something that now employs, I don't remember how many people, but it's hundreds of people. Is it more than hundreds? Is it thousands at this point? Yeah, okay, so it's, so it's a couple hundred people. That's a significantly sized um, cooperative, and a lot of that money came through the sale of these class B shares, so a lot of the co-ops are now starting to look at this model. One of the challenges, however, is that a lot of co-ops are coming from communities where people, again, don't have a lot of personal wealth. So how do you get connected to investors? How do you even start to think about asking the question of, hey, would you invest in my business? There's a lot of grassroots fundraising that goes into worker co-ops. Like we're just asking everybody we know, can you give us 50 bucks to get started? That's how Emma started at the beginning many years ago. But that doesn't get you to scale. That doesn't adequately capitalize a business that needs to support. 25 people in living wage jobs from the time that the doors open. Um, that's a huge challenge that that we're wrestling with, and it would be. I think it's one of the things that, as a national cooperative ecosystem, we have to we have to figure out how to how to address.
4: Yeah, and just just to follow up with that, you know, I think if you are gonna cre- create this community of investors who might support your project is really one of the hardest things any of us are doing. Um, and so for, for me, there's a few key points I just want to. Make sure people have his takeaways on that. And I think one is, yeah, have your, a really clear business plan or slide deck. Slide deck is fine. Really understand your financial model or keep getting better at the financial model. Um, but the, the other thing I just wanted to say is, um, I, and, and, and also be able to tell your story. I think the people who invest in these models are not people who want to make a killing on Wall Street. They're going to do it because they actually believe in you and your business. So I just want to make that abundantly clear. There are other ways for people to make money. This is about supporting you and, and your mission. And so your ability to tell that story in doing a compelling way is, is why, you know, we invested in Joseph is why people are going to invest in what you're doing. Um, and then just the last thing I want to say on this is I think it's also about putting it in a, in a context they can understand. And what I mean by that is they may or may not understand what a co-op is, depends where they are in that in that journey. Um, but if you say, look, you know, we're um, you know, a worker-owned business, you know, and when I was working with the brewer owners. For The first six months, we said, this is a brewer-owned purchasing group, okay? We sort of left the word co-op out of it because people don't always get it right away. When we're talking about investment models, we try to make the investment models look as close as we can to investing like in any other business so that we can demystify it as we try to bring the community in. Um, my mother, who's a social worker, always says to me, you need to start where the client is, not where you want them to be, right? So even though you have this great vision, you really got to do the, the, the work up front to put the storytelling and the investment in, in their language so it's easier for them to come in.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. As always, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us via email at moneyandmeaningpodcast at moneyandmeaningpodcastgmail.com or DM us on Instagram or Twitter at SoCapMarkets. For the next episode, we'll have a conversation with Rip Rapson, the president and CEO of the Kresge Foundation, and Aaron Seibert about the work that they're doing around the new Opportunity Zone legislation, and specifically the way that they're using guarantees into two Opportunity Funds to try to set a precedent for reporting standards and accountability. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.
0: You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets.